I'm Ava Hartling. Welcome to the Brand is Female podcast. Every week, I speak with women changemakers and founders who are redefining the rules of female leadership. This season of our podcast is brought to you by TD Women in Enterprise. TD helps women in business achieve success and growth through their educational workshops, financing, and mentorship. Visit thebrandiesfemale.com slash podcast and follow the link to find out how TD can help. This week, my guest is Eric Katz, co-founder and co-CEO of Seed Health, a company that is pioneering applications that microbes have for our health, who you may know from their popular line of probiotic products for gut health. A serial entrepreneur, it was Eric's breastfeeding experience that's led her to the microbiome and inspired her personal mission to explore the importance and impact of microbes. At Seed Health, she wears many hats from fundraising to design thinking, brand insights, and more. And she's at the helm of the company's work when it comes to science, communication, and storytelling. Era previously co-founded and served as CMO of digital commerce company Spring, where she helped launch Apple Pay on iPhone. And she was on the founding team of social commerce company Beachmint. Era is also an advisor and angel investor in health tech, ed tech, consumer, and sustainability. She's been a fellow at the MIT Media Lab Center for Future Storytelling, and she has been listed in Mary Claire Magazine's The New Guard, The 50 Most Influential Women in America, as well as Business Insider's Silicon Alley Top 100 and 36 Rockstar Women in NYC Tech. She is also the author of a kid's book about your microbiome. Here is our conversation. Ara, it's a pleasure having you on The Brand is Female today. Thank you so much for making time to speak with me. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm very excited to chat about your journey and uh, the, the the brand that you're known for now. But I like to start these conversations by asking guests to go back in time a little bit. So I'm curious to know, growing up as a young woman, what did you think you'd be doing as a career later in life? And was it at all connected to what you're actually doing today? I knew I would be creating and building things. <laughs> um, I wouldn't, I would say i absolutely wanted to be an architect um, mm. and I wanted to st- tell stories with space. Um, I knew that I wanted to design things. Um, and I am surprised, probably as a little girl, I'm surprised working on what I'm working on today. Um, but I'm not like on some level, like especially just based on the, the connectivity to the environment and nature, I'm not like entirely surprised based on how much that was a part of my childhood. Um, mm. But I definitely think it would, wouldn't have been until high school um, and going through my mom getting sick that I probably really knew that at some point in my life, I would be, I was fascinated and curious about biology and health. And I knew um, there'd be something in that at some point. Um, but really where I spent majority of my life and, um, and, and what I think I spent the most on as a kid was really like technology, nature, in art, design, and building things. And so I'm not that surprised <laughs> where I landed, but very circuitous path. And I'm probably more surprised by how long I spent in things that were not that. Mm. 
So tell me a little bit about what that looked like, your journey, you know, what did you study in school? And then you spent time at a number of brands before launching your own. So how did that all start? And, you know, what uh, what was that part of your journey like? Yeah, I mean, I've co-founded certainly other things prior to prior to Seed. Um, I never worked at another brand um, and and although I consulted, advised a number, a number of them, um, you know, in between things and certainly as a as an angel investor to um, have been involved ac- ac- across a number of different like disparate de- disciplines. But, you know, mm-hmm. my I think oh, I, what I studied in school just to start there was I studied clinical psychology um, and at Tufts actually, which has one of the only like un- undergrad clinical programs, which means you really have clinical you emerge from undergrad with clinical experience, which is very right. unusual for for people who don't know, undergrad and clinical is usually more like stat, stats and um, uh, a little less, you know, human oriented. Um, and that was extraordinary um, alongside a kind of degree that I was able to create um, in what they called media at the time, but really went across like film um, and storytelling. And so I was kind of doing those two things. Um, and that is really actually in, during college is when I got my career started as a film producer. Um, and that's where I spent a lot of time um, for almost a decade alongside some really cool work in tech um, in the media lab at MIT, um, doing some really interesting like future of storytelling work. Um, and really, it wasn't until I finished my last film that I really ever wanted to work on, um, which was a big documentary based on a book that really changed my life called The People's History of the United States. Um by Howard Zinn, which if, if anyone has seen Good Will Hunting, you'll remember it's the book mm. that Damon takes off the shelf in uh, exactly. Robin Williams' office and says, this book will change your life, which it did for me. Um, probably hasn't never been more relevant than it is today, but I, I got to bring that book to life with some extraordinary uh, artists, musicians, and actors. And really, um, and really that after that, I knew I had the tech bug. I've always had, I always had had the tech bug and I had like a number of opportunities and always had like a little foot and toe dipped in the, the startup world for, for a long time. And because of my MIT work, you know, just kind of always around mm. technology. And I really had an opportunity to be at the beginning of actually a bunch of the guys who had started MySpace um, were starting a new startup and I knew one of them and they were just like, come, you know, you know enough to be dangerous um, like come do this with us. Um, and so we did. Um, and that was the first, uh, that was my first, you know, they took one trip up to Silicon Valley, came back with $5 million, <laughs> which happens for serial entrepreneurs who happen to usually be male in technology. <laughs> and, exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and we were off and, and it was just an incredible, honestly, it was a front row seat to a show that I was also in. Um, while building like my first tech company. And that was, that was awesome. And I was on the founding team of, of that. And the sold, we sold it to Condé Nast. Um, actually, it was sold to Condé Nast actually even shortly after I had left. Um, and I really wanted to start my own thing. And I, I had, you know, it was at the very, that, that company was at the very early stages of like e-commerce where, you know, things you say now, people are like, oh, like that's so usual. But you remember like there are times when these technologies didn't exist. We've just been in such a, a revolution of things advancing so quickly that they don't seem seem so interesting now, but at the time, of course, they were quite uh, quite novel. So I went on. I had really started getting curious about the phone, and I co-founded a company called Spring, um, mm-hmm. which was really we. I was one of the first fourteen partners to launch um, Apple Pay, 
uh, which again, wow. who cares right now? Because you're like buying things on your phone is not <laughs> novel, but there was a time at that time, not yeah. long ago, uh, where that was not possible. And I remember, um, how interesting that it just felt, I knew something that the phone was going to be this like thing we had with us all the time. And I was really curious about how we were going to be using it. Um, and that actually, that again, I, I am grateful, very grateful for the experience, which was probably another, another work experience where I wouldn't say like, I, as they say, I am not the customer, um, mm-hmm. meaning, and it's, which is another way of also saying for me existentially, like, I wouldn't say it was like the thing that aligned the most with what I wanted to create in the world, but I would say mm-hmm. that it was educational. It was, it was really like an immersing in a new world, like mobile to me was like, that was really what I, I got out of it was being at the edge of something. Mm-hmm. And then I had a miscarriage. Um, and I was like in the midst of building the startup and living on planes between New York and LA. And I was like, you know, if this is not, what am I doing? You know, this life is not viable. And I think miscarriages can be great um, existential moments <laughs> to just think about everything, um, which I did. And I actually resigned from the company that I had co-founded, which is not a popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly wasn't without a lot of trepidation and um, ambivalence. And, um, and I knew that I think, you know, getting pregnant or being pregnant, even for short periods of time, I think brings you into your body and, um, and, uh, reminded me a lot of why, how much, how meaningful it is, um, to understand health and how, you know, it was, it was also at the time where like wellness was really just like taking off into this whole industry right. of going with all these new messages and mm-hmm. new images of what we should look like and feel like and sound like. And it was just a lot of like noise to me and a lot of, mm-hmm. but, a, but a lot of like really important ideas that humans wanted to be healthier and that also really important like illumination that we're really sick and that things yeah. are not okay environmentally and human wise and mm-hmm. I think it just brought me snapped me back into like well what do I want to create like if I'm going to have a child if I'm going to you know what do I want to do and I you know I've been since high school like a big nerd science nerd I've always especially science and tech you know there's a lot of overlap yeah I've always paid like you, you did study clinical psychology after all yeah exa- exactly and 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 I and I I've always loved um and I, the pursuit of like just knowing what we don't know already and I think science right. is like, such an extraordinary part of that and I think health as I watched wellness kind of rise I started to see these new words and this new lexicon for how we we're going to think about our bodies and I also, of course, saw at the same time all the downfalls and problems with like why people have tra- problems with like traditional medicine and healthcare system, and especially in this country. And I just, and, and then I got pregnant very shortly after that. And I think, you know, I had been tracking the microbiome just in my nerdy, nerdy cell of life, um, you know, for a while and, and really started to think about, especially as I got pregnant, you know, just how much we're bombarded with information that just is grounded in nothing. Yeah, um, absolutely. Products, advice, um, things to read, things. To, and I just, I just really started to feel like there was just this schism. There was this, I started to see mm-hmm, what was going mm-hmm. this way, people being anti-medicine or being so staunchly, you know, kind of this binary idea that it was kind of everything was one or the other. The world was obviously changing externally too. And I, I just, um, and I just really felt like the microbiome to me was this kind of, kind of not dissimilar to Apple Pay or the phone was kind of like this new frontier, you know, it was just like what right. was going to be the thing that, that end of, you know, that zero to one that um, Peter Thiel talks about where a thing would happen, like having the iPhone, for example, or having mobile technology and life will never be. And the way you think about the world and the way you operate within it will never be the same again. Mm-hmm. 
And there aren't that many things in, in science and health that will come along and be that. I think genomics promises that to a certain extent, but it's not something that you can immediately action or do anything about. It just offers obviously extraordinary insight and will change many things in the future and, and is, is already. But microbiome was something that to me was like immediately just like this beyond fascinating frontier of like what it meant to know ourselves, to know the other half of ourselves, 50% of ourselves are not human. This idea that there was this like other framework and entire new lens through which you could actually understand your biology or physiology, pathology, and more than that, it was actually this place that was going to be a source for um, solutions, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, ex- extraordinary um, and, and is coming true. Every, every, while we're on this podcast, I'm sure 20 papers have been published <laughs> about its vast potential to tell us things and also solve things. So all to be all, all that said, it was really that, you know, a culmination of so many things as, as like decisions in life are that are hard to capture in one podcast, but really my breastfeeding experience and being mm-hmm. pregnant really solidified for me, especially knowing that the role the microbiome plays both in my own microbiome and then the role of the microbiome that I'm developing during that period of time and then seeding at birth um, felt to me like um, where I could spend a lot of my life um, learning, but also building something that could be wildly impactful to people um, and really meaningful to me every day. Um, which is something that I think had been really missing in a lot of my previous work. Mm. I have a lot of questions that stem from everything you just brought up, but I do want to ask about influential people. You were working in the tech industry um, in, you know, spent some time fundraising in Silicon Valley. Women are typically underrepresented. What was that experience like before we go back and talk about what you're doing now? And how did you go about creating those relationships, creating those partnerships, and eventually choosing who you wanted to work with for your next venture? I mean, there's a lot of questions in there. I'll try uh, I packed the, a lot in there. The people <laughs> who have been the most influential in my life are often not work-related. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. um, and then the people where it crosses over are usually like, you know, friends, friends, um, our friends uh, and people who we've kind of have some sort of symbiosis uh, in, in that, but also have friendship outside of that. There are women like Ivy Ross, who um, you may know from, uh, she runs a lot of hardware design at Google. And she was um, somebody that I, I've always was a dear, is a dear friend, but also someone that I've always really, um, she is somebody who went into Google bringing heart and, a new mm-hmm. way of thinking about, and you can see it in the evolution of the phones. So you can mm-hmm. look at the pre Ivy and post Ivy world of like the way that her ethos was able to come into technology and bring something human and tactile um, and beautiful um, and, and live withable uh, to hardware. Um, and so she's somebody that I really, I think a lot inspired me as, as far as design. Mm-hmm. Um And then I think a lot of, for, for me, I think the, the greatest influences have come from the greatest storytellers of our time. And I think that that's very rarely like people who are just like good in business. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm fascinated, you know, everything in fundraising, every, everything you do, fundraising, the typography of your deck, the what words are on the, like everything is storytelling, everything. Like Roger, my co-founder and I laugh all the time that like 
it really is just the way you, the way you answer a question, the way that you pose a question, mm-hmm. what your form fields ask, everything is a reflection of who you are, what your values are, what you stand for. And it all is like a narrative. And so I think a lot of, honestly, I just, from, from telling so many stories and, um, I think that's where, honestly, I, I, I truly draw the most inspiration from, which is like everything from art and design, you know, film, music, and, and more so than like this business person, like inspired me. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it, to that end, I think I've always valued like human relationships more than anything. And that's my honest answer to like how I raise capital, which is mm-hmm. so much of it has come from the genuine connections and people that honestly have believed in me along the way. Um, we didn't take a lot of capital from people, at least large, the larger tranches from people until our series A that I had not known or hadn't met before and didn't know some of my work previously. Um, when you're really, really early in a startup, people are believing in you and not really the idea. Um, and then when you start to prove it out, people have to believe in both. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of our early capital was truly, and, and I have to give a lot of credit where credit is due in, in my life, which is that I was able to have far more success raising capital from men than I was with women. Um, and mm, interesting. I, I, I don't, I really, really empathize with and, and sympathize with a lot of the narrative that, um, and certainly am, have a first row seat to the bros club that people talk about um, mm. and know it well and have tangentially been around it for, for a long time and absolutely recognize the, inequities that not just exist, you know, from a gender perspective, but from a racial perspective, um, and certainly other, uh, other, other, um, communities that I think are, are really not well served by the way that venture capital, um, and capital in general has, um, systemically worked for so long. Mm-hmm. I can only say that I, at the same time, I have to be incredibly authentic to my own experience, which is that, I had a lot of trouble getting, despite the fact that I started this company as a woman out of my breastfeeding and birthing experience. And I honestly still couldn't, I couldn't, all the female founders funds, like nobody would invest in me. And so I have to, and the reasons that they gave also felt similar to the kinds of reasons that a lot of women say men don't invest in them. Don't support them. So wow. I would say that was that's one of my that is one of the more um, disappointing parts of building seed because I actually mm. had this whole I almost kind of went out with this idea that I was going to really have that be so different with this one. Um, and the truth is, we have don't get, don't make me wrong. We have some extraordinary female investors in seed, but that did not con- that was not for lack of having to try really hard and it was not from the bigger funds that are primarily um focused on uh women's health or um female founders or just great female vcs at big venture capital firms um hmm. with the exception of course of of a uh, of a couple who i said have been have been awesome but was very challenged my co-founder actually who's who's a man uh was like wildly surprised by that after everything mm. I had touted about how important it was going to be for me to raise capital that way. And I yeah, was clear about what I needed that to look like and how excited I was to like finally do it in this way and put this awesome group of women together. And I will tell you, that's not how it happened. 
Well, that's that's an interesting lesson, right? Some of the things we expect to go a certain way in business typically don't. Yes. Absolutely, <laughs> but also like just just to say that there's a there's proof points out there where I would say a lot of the men that I know in my life and the male investors like really really showed up and have mm. and have also continued to um, as we've been building seed, and I, I have to I have to acknowledge that. But that, that, as I said, that that's I am an N of one. Um, but I did have high hopes for that to be the case. And I hope at some point I can also go back and really examine that and understand it and unpack it a little bit more because, you know, I, I hope to, you know, invest a lot more at some point in my career. And I, I want to really make sure that I don't, um, I want to make sure that I, I don't miss the me, <laughs> mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. at, at the right time, um, you know, when I start investing more too, so... This season of The Brand is Female is made possible with the support of TD Women in Enterprise, and they're about confidently building you. As a woman entrepreneur myself, I know I need all the support I can get. It takes sound advice plus guidance to the right connections, tools, and resources. What's great about TD services for women in business is their collaborative approach. TD can facilitate and connect you to workshops, coaching, and mentorship, and they engage other like-minded business leaders in an authentic way so we can share experiences and learn from each other. TD Women in Enterprise has banking specialists who are able to be proactive in the advice and guidance they give to women in business. That's uh, that's actually quite fascinating. So for people who did choose to invest with those investors who supported you from the start, what do you think attracted them to seed? What were the selling points for them? We know it wasn't the you know woman founder narrative. Um, and at that point, it's, it's, it's very interesting because a lot of the offerings on the market when it comes to uh, probiotics and, and kind of things in, in, in a similar category are not necessarily branded the way you do at Seed. So, yeah. you know, how was that perceived when when you first went out with the idea for the brand? I mean, well, we didn't have the brand. We didn't have the brand when we first started. So um, a lot of it, as I said, when you first start, I think most Seed rounds are like generally about who's doing it. Um, right. And and I think especially because like it's like the lower, it's like lower amounts of capital, the highest risk, but also an investment in a relationship with entrepreneurs that you believe mm-hmm. it's not this one, it might be the next one. Right. So, um, so there's certainly, and, and certainly different investors have different theories about that, but for the most part, that was like a lot of the kind of general ethos of who we were talking to. So a lot of it was really just about us to start. Um, and about uh, certainly a lot of them were coming from my relationships. And so I think a lot of it was belief in, in me um, also looking at, I wouldn't say microbiome was very early um, at that time. And so I would say more so the belief that an understanding that probiotics were going to be an extraordinary uh, category that was work that was uh, growing at an extraordinary velocity um, that has not really been seen a lot before in terms of how much market share was taking from certain existing categories at the time, infant formula was probably the best case study for a, a global category that was being wholly disrupted by uh, micro by, by probiotics, by the addition of probiotics and, um, and prebiotics slash kind of HMOs, which is what they refer to more in the infant world. Um, mm-hmm. And so that tailwind was probably probably one of the better like um, reasons and rationale plus team um, that allowed us to at least get started. Plus the belief that like 
we could build like an exceptional brand that would stand out when you looked at the space. It was really not that inspiring <laughs> or exciting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a lot of like older incumbents that um, just been sitting on the shelf for 20 years with little to no science um, just happened to be what doctors recommended for no other reason than they were sitting on the shelf. Um, and, uh, and I think that there was, and, and I think what we did though very carefully and by design was we didn't tell our whole story and our whole, mm. actually it was a very curated version of the vision because we have a really big problem at seed, which is you talk to consumer people about science and they just like, you lose them and you talk mm-hmm. to science people about consumer things and that you lose them too. So, um, so we really had to figure out how to tell our story very clearly to some, one person who, which was like a D to C like supplement company mm-hmm. and then to somebody else to say, we, this is the future of microbiome and it will be a platform that's able to go across multiple diagnostic platforms, large human data set, you know, like, whereas if I had said that to the D to C like consumer investor, they would have rolled their eyes at me and said, right. I'm sorry, we just don't know how to deal. And what they say is that we wouldn't know how to diligence that, um, and therefore probably not the best fit for you. So it was mm-hmm. just about finding the right narrative. You know, as I said, everything's kind of storytelling, just finding the right narrative and what, what resonated with each um, person. And, and we did that not to obfuscate anything, but actually so that we would end up with a cap table that was incredibly eclectic and diverse across different disciplines. And that was very, very important to us. Um, and, and the way that we've built seed today, and you look at our like series a, that was like exactly what we did, which was, you know, we have tech bio, um, we have tech, uh, we have consumer, um, and we really make sure that that kind of consumer and commercialization, as well as our life science is like very well represented, both on the cap table at the board level. Um, and then obviously both reflected in my, and my co-founders, um, you know, respective roles within the company. And so that was really like an incredibly important thing to us too, is that making sure that our, our investors re- reflected and reinforced and give us credit, um, for the, uh, incredibility, uh, for like the different, the very disparate, u- uniquely disparate parts of us that don't typically exist within one company. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting. And one question I always like to ask, um, female founders and, and women entrepreneurs in general is, you know, what's their definition of leadership? And in your case, I'd love to know as well, what kind of responsibility do you feel you have being at the helm of, you know, a brand in, in this specific category, also understanding that the wellness market is now, you know, it's truly a multi-billion dollar industry and it's very hard to know um you know and and parts of it are highly regulated parts are not um it's hard to know as a consumer you know what's a brand that's really offering quality ingredients a quality process you know do i really need this product or uh, are companies just taking advantage of my ongoing quest for you know bettering my life and my health so how you know how do you kind of balance out all these things as you make decisions on a daily basis for the company Well, I would, I would even add to your question, I would even add that it's even harder when every company is just using the word science and using the word transparency and saying that the reason they started the company was to create either create transparency or to help people guide them to the best like choice and product, which happens to be theirs. So I I would say it's even harder than what you described because a Mm. lot of the same language is being used. Um, and a lot of the same tactics are being used that Absolutely. have traditionally been used for, um, in, at least in like previous decades and previous moments, uh, a lexicon that was more 
uh, you would see more in the in, for the companies who are maybe um, selling to like doctors and practitioners, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and or, or or things that are more clinically oriented. So um, I think it's even harder now, actually. Uh, and you get obviously information good point. from many yeah. more places too. Um, so it's no longer just like a pharmacist and a practitioner, but it's every single human on the internet. Uh, yeah, exactly. Take- Everyone on Instagram and TikTok. Yes, exactly. And, and well beyond and, and everybody who has a good SEO strategy. Um, yeah, so, you know, so I think it's actually even much harder than you described. And I, I, I think the accountability that I feel um, is, is honestly not to be underestimated. It is truly one of the t- most challenging parts of what we do mm-hmm. um, as a company that has put a lot of friction um, into uh, into our, our experience and um, a lot of accountability in places like the way we work with KOLs, for example, um, or influencers. Um, you know, the, we, we've won a lot. We've won a number of awards for our C University program because, you know, we really don't let anybody partner with us until they go through like a certification um, to be able to learn something. And we're like, you know, someone can't demonstrate that they want to actually learn something before they share something um, that that feels too promiscuous to us, that feels too uh, mm-hmm. unaccountable to us. And so this notion of hashtag ad, hashtag accountable is something that we <laughs> talk about a lot um, as it relates to all of our marketing. Um, we're increasingly starting to speak to practitioners and pediatricians um, and, uh, you know, of all kinds of disciplines from gastroenterologists to, um, as I said, pediatricians to functional and integrative and, you know, kind of everyone in between, immunologists, et cetera. And I think that's even um, demonstrated to me like an even greater accountability because you're not just speaking to people who have questions or who want to proactively reach out to you. You're really speaking to the people who dedicate their entire life to actually nurturing the health of other people. Um, mm. And that's not to be underestimated. And those people certainly don't can sniff bullshit from, <laughs> from very far away. Um, and then I think at the end of the day, the, the greatest accountability to me is just to the, the our, our community. I mean, the, the, um, our members and the people who participate in our community, whether they are buying a product or just reading our educational, you know, content, I take them both the same, which is that, you know, you have, we have, especially right now, especially in, um, in the context of COVID and what we've all kind of come through, continue to go through, there's no question that you need to play the long game and you need to be on the right side right. of all of this. Um, it's just, it's just, it is, it's, you, it, it is, tr- it is truly both the greatest privilege to be able to have the opportunity to, in my, in my world, translate extraordinary science into, um, innovation that can actually impact millions of people, which is extraordinary. Um, it is inspiring on a daily basis, but it is also like one of the greatest like points of something, you know, that I carry with me all day, every day, which is, you know, the, a lot of the world that we touch, a lot of the people that we touch. And when you look at the population, the amount of people who are really suffering from everything from the most mild GI condition Mm -hmm. to like, full-blown IBS to other kinds of pathology, you know, people really suffer. And when they come and they try something, whether you have said something or not, it comes with a lot of hope and a lot of like belief. And you, if you don't take that seriously, my opinion is that you should not be in this business. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, we will never get better. And we, again, based on the numbers that you see today and just like levels of sickness at, at every part of the spectrum 
um, if there's so much stuff out there that does absolutely nothing. Um, and, and even worse in some cases can be, you know, um, damaging, uh, mm. you know, and, and, um, and I think that there's, there's so much opportunity to make an impact and science is in, in so many areas is moving into such exciting places that we're really going to have answers to some of our biggest, like unmet medical needs environmentally, we're going to have real solutions. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's, it really does, the more noise there is, the harder it is to reach people. Um, where you could really make a, a meaningful impact. And I think those are some of the things that I definitely carry with me on a daily basis. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and a, another good reason to be paying attention to your brand and, and choosing seed. Um, I'm curious to know your own approach to wellness as a mom, as a busy entrepreneur. So in addition to, um, I'm sure, spending a lot of time, you know, uh, uh, taking care of your, your microbiome and, and, and improving everything you can improve there, what are things that are important uh, to you in your, in your wellness routine? I mean, I, I, this is where like, I'm so boring (laughs) because it's the things that I don't have some fancy potion to talk about. Um, I think, well, you know, seeds a good start. Yeah, sure. I guess, um, I guess I do take, and I do take our product DSO one. Um, and my, my child takes PDSO eight, which is our pediatric product, but Mm -hmm. you know, beyond, you know, beyond that. And I also say beyond that, just because, I'm very proud of what we do, but, um, a, not everybody can afford that. Um, today we are working on a lot of interesting programs to change, to change that and make sure there's much greater access, but just to recognize that there are things that don't cost $50 a month, um, like, like ours do. And I think it's important to recognize that it's another part of my problem with wellness and and health in general is that I think it's lacks in a lot of (laughs) self-awareness, uh, of, of, of who, who you're speaking to always. And also, the truth is, is, and I always say this, and this is where everyone tells me I'm the worst salesperson, which is that beyond the things you can take, they're really, truly beyond, there's almost nothing when it comes to microbiome that is probably as impactful as your diet. Mm-hmm. So you can take a probiotic, hopefully hours <laughs> all day, <laughs> every day. Um, but, but nutrition and diet are the most critical lever. Um, and I think that that's something that of course, like for, for me is, um, and again, I lost my mom at a young, at a young age and I really mm, imprinted on me how meaningful it is that this is the only one of these that you get. Right. And, um, I've, I, so I would say like from a microbiome perspective, like diet, hydration, mm-hmm. like a lot of water, <laughs> um, sleep, although I'm a hypocrite right now because I have a, a five month old. So, um, as much as, as hard as I try, it's not always attained. Um, but I would say there's there, you know, your microbes have their own circadian rhythm. Um, and, uh, as do you, of course, and sleep is not to be underestimated. Although I think in the last number of years, people have done a great job of explaining why that's incredibly important. Um, and movement, Um, Mm -hmm. I think we need to, we are, we are living sedentary lives, um, and we need to move. Um, and that doesn't mean that you need to go kill yourself in a gym. It means that 45 minutes of walking a day or, um, you know, low grade cardio plus, you know, lifting, uh, lifting some weights, which by the way, for women, I've been reading about like powerlifting and bone density. So I do advocate for some weightlifting Mm. for sure. And, and the evidence is actually incredibly clear of how critically important that is, especially for women approaching premenopause, menopausal, um, uh, ages. 
Um, and then I think there's the mental health component, which is, um, which I think like just meditation, um, and whether that's, does not have to be the like sitting home <laughs> for 45 right. minutes and does not have to be some like grand gesture of, you know, of, of time because, <laughs> you know, busy moms hear meditation and they're like, yeah, sh- sure. Uh, um, sneak in a few minutes when you can, sure. but, I, but I actually think that there's like other things that are really meditative. I think even just like sitting on a bike for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, can be meditative. I think like just literally lying on your closet floor uh, for 10 minutes, listening to like something on your iPod or on your iPhone, that's like, you know, uh, inspires or brings you into yourself in some way. Um, I think it can happen in the shower. I don't think it has to be this like Instagram image of what (laughs) meditation looks like, but I do think like the coming back to yourself um, Mm -hmm. and checking in, even by the way, if that check-in is like, holy shit, like I'm actually don't feel good today. Like it doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you have to always feel great and be perfect and centered and balanced and grounded and everything. Um, it, I think it's just a, I think it's really important that you have, and by the way, even like you drop your kids off at school um, and you have 15 minutes in a car, um, what you listen to in those moments matters. Um, what you do at that time matters. And I think then the last thing I would say, which is tied to what I just said, which is the structuring of time is a big part of my wellness um, and mm. do a horrible job at it Monday through Friday, just based on running seed. Um, but do actually stop at a time where it allows me to, to be with, you know, eat together, kid, you know, whatever that like five thirty to seven thirty period looks like I, I get up at like five, five thirty in the morning. So that time that's really early is incredibly precious. And so I think just the mindful structuring of time is something that um, I think is a really important part of like taking care of oneself. Hmm. All very good advice. I'm curious to know uh, your definition of success today and did it evolve over time? If I'd, I, if I'd asked you the same question, you know, five, 10 years ago, what oh, would the answer have been There's different? two words that I'm allergic to. One is career and the other is success. <laughs> I, I, I really have such a poor, poor answer for you. Um, because they it's both, actually a great answer. They both imply, they imply, they imply an endpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and like as someone who tries to be as like tries to be and aspires to be about as Buddhist as possible, and some some aspect of practicing non attachment, like I think that they create those two words create so much suffering um, that I, I I really it's a lexicon that just doesn't like um, resonate with me. I think mm-hmm. always, don't get me wrong, it's great to have goals. And it's not like we like run, we don't run seed and say like, we have no goals because we're Buddhist. But I think having goals and hitting milestones is amazing. But when it comes to my own life, um, I really, I, I, it, it's, it's a, it's a way of thinking that I just like building and creating things. I, mm-hmm. I do. And I think, you know, not to say at certain moments, things have a cadence where you're saying, is this the right moment to, to do this or to sell a company or to, um, to raise capital. And so it's not that I don't want to sound like some like floating off into like this, this doesn't like feel like tangible. Um, but I really think that those words, particularly for women, have not served us. Mm-hmm. That may be the best answer I've ever gotten to <laughs> somebody's definition of success. Thank you for that. You're welcome. And in closing, what's one thing you wish women would do more of and one thing you wish women would do less of? And you've answered part of that question, not, not be focused on success. I, I mean, I would say ask, ask questions that are less in the framework of gender. 
Mm-hmm. Meaning, and I don't mean like because you asked me that question. I mean it more um, the feeling of being generalized. I think I, I, at least the way that I've interpreted and, and witnessed and been inspired by where I, where I hope a lot of our women's work um, rights, et cetera. And of course, recording this at this particular moment with everything that's going on in Iran right now mm. and other parts around the world is not lost on me uh, based on the name, name of this podcast um, is that I think, and, and in light of understanding how, Russia interfered with the women's rights movement now <laughs> in the United States and used bots to bifurcate the movement. Um, I, I would say that I really do uh, wish that women would, could, we, we, we could stop actually like we would make, make this podcast irrelevant, <laughs> mm-hmm. meaning that um, these discussions and conversations, it's like when a lot of uh, podcasters ask me, like, how do you do it all? Um, and the answer is you just, we don't ask men that, like we don't ask them that. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and so a, a lot of, a lot of what I hope for is a world where these distinctions become less distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's, I don't put that on women to say that they should do less or more of it. Um, but to say that I think we can start to use language that cultivates less division, but also recognizes how much amongst women we have such disparate experiences Mm -hmm. that by putting us together, I think the most salient point I think that was made to me recently was, you know, a lot of white women had been commenting during a lot of the Trump, during everything Trump does, um, uh, you know, saying, making references to Handmaid's Tale um, and saying things like under his eye and, you know, certainly, um, making all kinds of references to the fact that like what he was doing and the way that that made women feel um, and the misogyny was somehow tied to, of course, a world where you could imagine what that would feel like in the way that Handmaid's Tale articulated that world. And of course, women of color w- w- were very quick to say white women. Um, that has been our experience, particularly in this country, since before we can remember. (laughs) So I think that when we say women, I think that it also sometimes betrays the diversity of our experiences. Um, And I say that as a white privileged woman sitting here. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that's something that I I reconcile with, of course, feeling the universality of a lot of things that I think are really important and beautiful that of course you're cultivating in your conversations. And at the same time, I feel really conflicted um, mm-hmm. because my experience as a woman is so vastly different, um, than other women. Mm-hmm. Well said. And I as well wish we didn't need a podcast called The Brand is Female. <laughs> <laughs> the Brand is Human. Exactly. Brand is- I, I look forward to the day where that can be, uh, that can be the focus. Well, file the trademark because I hope it comes in our lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been fantastic yep. hearing about what you're building and the inspiration behind it and excited to thank see you. what you do next. And thank you for bringing uh, such a, a wonderful product uh, into our lives and thank you for making time to speak with me today oh thank you your questions were so inspiring thank you your answers were even more inspiring so thank you 
I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And if you did, as always, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and give us a review wherever that is possible. Thank you to TD Women in Enterprise for their support of The Brand is Female. You've got it in you to succeed. Let TD help guide you. Visit thebrandisfemale.com slash podcast and click on the TD logo. Thank you so much for listening to a podcast by The Brand is Female. I'm Ava Hartling, and this episode was produced by our team. Sound engineering by Isabel Morris. Research and production support, Claire Miglionico. Yeah.